Mercedes team principal Toto Wolf has opened up about his struggles with mental health. Wolf revealed he has been seeing a psychiatrist for the past 18 years. We spoke to Professor Sophia Schneider, who's been treating Toto Wolf, and she said, Oh, it has been a great success. He's marvelous. He's helped not only me personally, but done such amazing work that psychiatric medicine is all the better for what he's given us. Wow. Quite the result, Toto. Hello and welcome back to Gareth Jones on Speed after a week where we weren't able to make it due to COVID-19 or rather I wasn't able to make it but I'm back and slightly throaty but joining me sounding purer voices Sarah Leach hello and Zog hello how are we gang all right I'm good by the sounds of it I've been doing a lot better than you Gareth (laughs) yeah I wouldn't say it was touch and go But having COVID is always a bit of a worry. And I don't know if it was the first time I had it or the second time, because I was very ill for about 12 days right at the very, very start before we went into lockdown. And we weren't testing then. So I don't know if what I had was COVID. But I do know that this time I had COVID. And actually, if ever there was a good time to have to isolate at home, this was it. Because I was able to watch all the Bahrain testing in some terrible levels of detail. I soaked it all up. There were six hours every day, I think, something like that. And I watched loads of it. Did you two watch any of it live at all? I didn't, unfortunately. Yeah, and no, I didn't get any live, but was following it and watching Ted Kravitz's notebooks, for example, updates from testing. He makes terrific content yes i really really love the notebook stuff he does on sky but he took it to a new level with his interview with esteban ocon talking in french and showing off his fashion choices and you saw that uh, i saw that yeah yeah yeah. Yeah. but that aside yeah there's a lot to think about from Mm. those days of testing some apparently dramatic new tech coming in on the mercedes in particular so what are your big takeaways from your immersion in testing then gareth good question one is that i still don't think it's clear as to whether mercedes have got a working functioning car for this season because every Mm. time i've seen george russell or lewis go around Bahrain in the W13, is that the number? Unlucky for some. It seemed to be porpoising terribly, which not only is a performance issue, but also, I think, a safety issue. In that if you're in a car which is bouncing up and down when you're going flat out, it's going to make it very hard for you to press buttons and steer your car and operate the car as you're supposed to be doing. Sarah, have you been able to follow porpoising at Bahrain at all? Where the car seems to be moving very much like... I did when I was swimming across Wales, and that is surfacing and going under the surface. So in terms of a car, it's bouncing up and down. What's happening is that the aerodynamic load under the car is sort of stalling. It's a bit like, Mm. have you ever tried to empty a bottle full of water? It goes glug, 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 and you can't empty the water out until air goes in. It's sort of choking. And some of the cars 
have been experiencing that. Very well explained. Thank you, Gareth. I haven't actually <laughs> caught too much vision of it. I've been sort of busy working this week, so I haven't had a chance to watch any of the practice. But I have been reading that there has been quite a lot of controversy over the Mercedes car and that um, Christian mm. Horner made a few complaints saying that it was illegal. There was lots yeah, of sparks coming from whined. the Mercedes car. Yeah. And That's not like Christian Horner to whinge and whine, is it? Yeah, no, especially not about a Mercedes. Um, <laughs> yeah, and even um, actually Lewis Hamilton has come forward and said that he doesn't think the car is sort of competitive as what he might like. Well, it's certainly not ready. I mean, yeah. my quick take on it is that what Mercedes have done, and we'll get to the detail of what they've done, that has enabled them to make this dramatic change to the shape of the side pods. But what they've done, it's clearly something that will potentially unlock a decent chunk of speed. Otherwise, they would not be doing it. Yep. And I'm going to assume that they're absolutely right, that what they're doing has the potential to unlock all this speed. They clearly are not in a position where they can actually get that advantage yet. They haven't got the installation, the deployment of this new tech on that car working properly yet. They've got work to do and they're going to be sorting this out at least for the first couple of races. So Mercedes are not going to be in a position to win the first couple of races. But I would be very surprised if once we're past the opening stage of the season I'd be very surprised if Mercedes haven't got on top of that and we're seeing a good three-way scrap between Mercedes Ferrari and Red Bull Ferrari and Red Bull I think clearly being the two teams who are ready to go with very quick race packages right now yeah as I said in the last episode I think what Ferrari are doing with their aerodynamics with their gully down the top of the side pod yeah seems to have given them a fairly stable car as I understand it the way to reduce the chance of porpoising is to raise your ride height slightly to allow a bigger slot however if you do that you lose a bit of downforce so it's a trade-off isn't it yeah that I think is kind of the bodge fix. That is the way that you fix your porpoising problem if you cannot address it at a more fundamental level. And yeah, and this porpoising problem, as you said earlier, Gareth, has to do with the stalling of the airflow. It's this transition between a linear airflow and turbulent airflow. And I believe that's particularly hard to model, which is one of the reasons essentially why we're seeing so much of this on the cars in testing the last couple of weeks that this is very hard for the teams to model so it's only when they're getting the cars out on track that some of them are finding that the porpoising is as bad as it is it's interesting isn't it that they find it difficult to model this in their tunnel and even in their virtual computational fluid dynamics packages that they didn't actually either spot it or come up with a design that was going to avoid it and i think it's something to do with when they run a car in a tunnel they have a rolling road underneath it like a belt like those things that you run on if you're running in a gym and that they can't run that belt like a treadmill. At, yeah, yeah like a treadmill exactly so yeah well they can't run that rolling road at the sort of speeds that matches the wind speed and it's causing them to destroy the belt over a certain speed that's what i really read i yeah yeah the, the belt starts fluttering and it would tear the belt to ribbons i hadn't heard that but what i had picked up on is the fact that this domain of fluid dynamics when you're transitioning from linear behaviour to the turbulent behaviour, which is also with boundary layers and, and this is stuff, yep. that transition is one of the more difficult things to model in 
computational fluid dynamics in modelling of these systems. And whilst the modelling of the linear flow is very, very good and the understanding of the more turbulent flow is reasonably good, that in-between area and just exactly when the shape that you have created starts to make the air go turbulent rather than stick with the laminar flow that's a very tricky area and that's why the teams haven't understood it because it's a very hard thing to understand and the computer modeling they've been using very effectively and very successfully for the last few years of aerodynamic models are lacking in this area because it's very hard and i guess it's not something that's been quite so important maybe yes i think that's fair yeah But to take a step back, another thing that that I think is, and we we said this before, but I think it's great that we're seeing such different solutions to the challenges of making a race car to this year's rules. The Red Bull, the Ferrari, the McLaren, the Mercedes, they all look different. They all come up with different ingenious stuff to make their cars go quickly. And this is what we want. We want different solutions. We want different solutions out there rather than everything looking the same. So it's great that we've got this shake-up and it finds opportunities to shake the order up a bit. That said, we've still got Red Bull looking terrifically quick, so uh, it hasn't changed all that much. Yeah. Sarah, how would you say your view of what you've heard about testing? Who's rocking it? And who's come out six weeks early and at the bottom of the pack, would you say? I think the Albine Formula One team has done well. I think Fernando Alonso has been right up there. So is Ferrari and obviously Red Bull. You know, the usual suspects, Haas team probably hasn't done so well. Williams haven't done so well, but it just comes down to their individual budgets and what they can do with the car, right? Haas were very quick on the last day of testing. Oh, yeah, really? Yeah, Sorry, yeah, yeah. I'll eat my words. Well, they were allowed an extra two hours because they failed to turn up on the first day, or rather they failed to get all the bits they needed to run the car on the first day. So they were given special dispensation to have extra running. But it does look like they've got a decent car, better than arguably Williams, which looks beautiful, but doesn't seem to run as well as the Haas. I'm sure they've got a better car than the Williams. The question is whether they've got a better car than Aston Martin or McLaren even. Unlikely, I think. But the caveat, it was the last day of testing, there's a lot more rubber on the track they were running right at the end of the day so i guess the air's a bit cooler so there could be all kinds of reasons why Haas had an advantage when they were doing that last day of testing nonetheless the fact that they managed to set the second quickest time suggests they may have a pretty good car to start the season and the fact that they've put kevin magnuson into that car i mean maybe we're going to talk about kevin magnuson a bit more in a moment but the fact they put kevin magnuson in the car That, I think, gives them a real chance to seize opportunities in the very opening stages of the season because this is a time when everyone's trying to figure their cars out, everyone's trying to get everything working properly. It's quite like Mercedes, for example, will be running the first few races with a car that they're still struggling to get on top of, still trying to get some pace out of, and that's going to continue down the field. That creates a real opportunity for the back of the grid teams, for the midfielders to score points and to get you know better finishes, better results than they would later in the season. Yeah. And with Kevin Magnussen in the car, he can start the season on his front foot. You know, he's not going to be getting to know the team, getting to know the paddock. You know, he just comes right in there with his knowledge of the team, a team that he gets on well with. And so Haas, obviously they're, in the big scheme of things, nowhere. But I think they've got a great chance to have a good start to the season. And Kevin Magnussen may well prove his worth. He might have sort of paid off their investment in him, you know, in the first three or four races. Yeah, I have to say, I was rather taken aback that they went 
back to Kevin Magnussen. Sarah, were you surprised when he was confirmed as the driver for 2022 alongside little Mickey Schumacher? I wasn't overly surprised, no, because he's kept himself quite active. But I was surprised if they didn't even consider Hulkenberg. Yeah. I thought he might be brought back in. That's exactly what I would have done. And poor old Pietro... Fittipaldi was their official test driver. You know, he got to drive the first morning of Bahrain and then that's it. He sidelined poor Pietro because mm-hmm. he did a reasonably good job when he stood in for Grosjean the end of whenever it was, the year before last, you know. I feel sorry for Pietro. Mm. And also sorry for, uh, what's his name? Uh, Giovinazzi. Giovinazzi, yes. Uh, Giovinazzi. Yeah, Giovinazzi, who I thought stood the best chance of coming in because he's pretty much up to speed and did a passable job alongside Kimi, really. I wonder what their thinking was, why they went with K-Mag. It may be personal relationships that swung it yeah, in the end. Yeah, I tend because, to think that as well because he sort of yeah. slips right back in there like a glove and he obviously didn't burn his bridges. Maybe he was more available to sort of come straight out from where he was. Well, he did almost burn his bridges because do you remember when Tycho was on the show recently, Tycho noticed that Kevin Magnussen had made some sort of wry comment about the Haas car and had tweeted a, a picture of something with a joke and it was a bit of a dig at Haas. But hey, they must love him so much that they're willing to accept him despite that. Good to Steiner can dish it out. He can probably take it. You know, <laughs> yeah, that's true. <laughs> Good luck to Kevin Magnussen at Haas. I think Pietro Fittipaldi, I'm sure, would have done a decent job. But I think if, if Haas were looking at the start of the season as a chance to get some points and they want to have a driver who's absolutely ready to go and they know works well with them, makes total sense that they've gone with K-Mag. Mm. I said, what do you think will happen to Mazepin now? You know, he's, he's obviously very out in the cold. Well. But will he be out for the whole season? Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah, he, yeah he's no, done I mean, now. Yeah. yeah. You can hardly even sort of get into the horrible situation that has led to Mazepin being dropped. And, mm. But that situation isn't changing in the next six months to 12 months, you know. Yeah. No, Mazepin is not coming back for the foreseeable future, is my prediction. Mm. While we're on the subject of... Russia and Ukraine and money in Formula One. I discovered something interesting this week that I had no idea about. What is the name of the driver who drives alongside Sebastian Vettel at Aston Martin? It's a challenge. What's his name? Is this a trick question? Not necessarily. What's his name? Our good Canadian friend. Yes. What's his name? Uh, Lance. Lance Stroll. Yes. Lance Stroll. Lance Stroll. That's not his name. Since you've queued that up, can I take a guess? Yeah. I think you've given us all the information now. Yep. So I'm going to assume this is the Stroll family name was changed in the early to mid 20th century when they emigrated from Russia to Canada. It was changed in the last 10 years. Wow. That's interesting. Lance Stroll, his name on his birth certificate, it does not say Lance Stroll. It says Lance Strolovich. No way. You know, a lot of people do that. And so his father is Lawrence Strulovic, which again is a Slavic name. Ovic, I think, is sort of more Serbian than Russian, but it's definitely that part of the world. And I had no idea. I think it means son of, doesn't it? So Ovic. Vladimir Vladimirovich is Vladimir, son of Vladimir. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Yeah, which is Vladimir Putin's middle name. His father was called Vladimir, wasn't it? Yes, yeah, yeah. yes. But we won't talk about him there. Yeah, so I was slightly surprised to discover Lance Stroll is Lance Strelovich, and so I'm only going to refer to him as Lance Strelovich from now on. He can call me Gaz Top if he wants, not that he ever will. <laughs> Whilst we're on the subject of names as well, 
Here's something else that occurred to me. The Alpha Tauri team is, in fact, the Red Bull beta team, isn't it? You could say. Yeah, pretty much. Yeah, yes. Uh, yeah. So for, to all intents and purposes. Yeah. Yeah. So we shouldn't call it Alpha Tauri. We should refer to it as Beta Bull, which is a great shame that they didn't have Cyril Abitabull as their manager. It would have been absolutely poetically beautiful. Very funny. <laughs> so if Alpha Tauri are actually Beta Bull or Beta Tauri, does that make Red Bull Alpha Bull? <laughs> Very good. I'm applying logic. It makes no sense. But the most exciting thing, and I'm dying to talk about this and so we've got to keep this simple i knew you were going to love this <laughs> yeah the best bit of news that came out of testing in bahrain absolutely tickled me in ways i couldn't imagine that is that the mercedes team to improve the cooling of their whole system have gone to i won't even say a world leader i'm going to say a planetary leader in that field and that is a company called reaction engines who way back in thatcher's period came up with the idea of an air breathing rocket engine uh, which is now matured into something they called saber s-a-b-r-e i can't quite remember what it stands for but it is a rocket engine which means you don't have to carry a great big tank of liquid oxygen with you while you're flying your single stage to orbit aircraft or spacecraft up into space because it can just breathe the air available they are specialists in extracting cold or usable temperature oxygen from the air by using a four-stage cooling process. So a kind of set of radiator heat exchangers which make the air dense and cool and functional for rocket engines. So that old joke, it ain't exactly rocket science, motorsport. Well, on this occasion, it actually is. Do you know any more than that, Zogo? First of all, let's just say that this isn't even rocket science. Rocket science is easy, you know. <laughs> bit of Kozlowski's rocket equation, whatever it is, F equals MA, bit of air resistance, bish, bash, bosh, you're in orbit, you know. Easy stuff. That Easy. sounds a lot easier than what I feel like it is. <laughs> rocket engineering is hard, and this is hard rocket engineering. What I know about reaction engines and Sabre, it's worth saying, when you read about the history of reaction engines and where they started, how their technology has developed, it sounds absolutely like a batch crazy guy in a shed welding some things together and going, this is going to go to space. OK, granddad, take your pills. Yeah, yeah that. here are some more spare parts to play with but this crazy guy alan bond is it is that that's the name correct yes yeah. great british inventor yeah yeah he may be a crazy guy in a garage but he is designing extraordinary stuff he designed a first generation of this engine and as you say the key thing about this engine which is designed to power a single stage to orbit launcher is that it's a rocket engine that can both use a propellant and liquid oxygen when it is in space but before it gets to space when it's in the atmosphere yeah it can use the air that it's flying through to provide the oxidizer and that saves you a huge amount of weight when you take off yep. and it makes the whole single stage to orbit practical but it is incredibly hard it turns out really very 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 hard indeed to take in all of the air that you need when you're traveling at hypersonic speed to cram this air into your engine funnel it into the combustion chamber it's very hard to manage this airflow one of the reasons that it's hard to manage is that the air gets very very hot 
when you compress it on the way in, you need to cool this air, and you need to cool it very, very quickly. We're talking fractions of a second, and you need to cool an awful lot of it. Yeah, Alan Bond designed a version one of this engine when he was working for a defence contractor. I can't remember the details of this, but he designed this basically for a British military application. It was never taken up by the British military, British government, and then after he'd left that job and Alan Bond wanted to commercialise this engine, he wanted to use his own patents, and there were several patents, one of the key ones being to do with how you cool this air. And he wasn't allowed to use the technology because it was a... It was under the Official Secrets Act. It was protected, uh, wasn't it? I don't know how any Official Secrets Act stuff might, might play into it. But the MOD, the defence establishment, did not want to release the patent for anyone else's use. They wanted to retain the patent, which meant that Alan Bond had to go off and figure out a new way to overcome the tremendously difficult problem of cooling all this air down for his crazy engine without infringing his own patent for solving this incredibly difficult problem. And he did it. He came up with another way of cooling all this air. And, of course, it's essentially a big radiator, a big intercooler. A heat exchanger. A heat exchanger, precisely. Scavenges Um, all the heat out of the air. And then the clever thing is that in the Sabre reaction engines, air-breathing rocket engine, that heat energy that they scavenge out of the air, they don't throw away. They actually recycle that to use in the turbo pumps of the rocket element of the motor, which is a very efficient machine. And, you know, we talk about this being a batch crazy idea. It does actually work, and we know this because in 2019, I think, sort of late 2019, Reaction Engines were able to successfully test their four-stage pre-cooler up to Mach 5, five times the speed of sound, paving the way for hypersonic flight. So it does work oh, yeah, on yeah, a very yeah. large scale. All they've yeah. got to do now is shrink it down to something that can be carried on a rocket. I mean, they've already shrunk that technology or the idea of that technology that can be used in a Formula One car, according to Mercedes. They took advice from reaction engines. Are they actually using their IP or a similar idea, I wonder? I'd really like to know. I suspect that Mercedes won't be giving away too many details. There's going to be a significant difference here in the I think reaction engines at least designed this cooling system for them. There's going to be a big difference in the way what is on the Mercedes is performing what the pre-coolers are doing on the Sabre engine, in that, first of all, the airflow into the intercooler on the Sabre engine is going to be, you know, supersonic, hypersonic. Yep. Massively greater speed, and you're dealing with much higher temperatures. And you're also dealing, I think, with a particular problem that has to do with condensation and even icing up of your pre-cooler because when you suddenly cool a mass of air you can get condensation you can get ice forming and I believe one of the challenges they had to overcome in this pre-cooler which has a lot of very fine pipe work and very fine air gaps is preventing it from icing up and getting blocked right but not an issue at motorsport speed not going to be yeah not an issue for motorsport speed but the challenges of using the minimum amount of hardware to move the maximum amount of heat quickly Mm. is why they've gone to reaction engines. And, yeah, I love that they're using some genuine space tech. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, you and me both. And it has enabled them to shrink the cooling package on the Mercedes so small that they have more or less eliminated the side pod altogether. And the only way that this car is legal is because... They're using the side impact protection 
bar to extend the bodywork out to the point at which you're supposed to have side pods. It's a legality thing. And the clever thing is that they've also got an aerodynamic profile on that bar, which is directing or conditioning the air correctly towards the back end of the vehicle. So if they can make this work... It's a win-win, but they're not close to making it work at the moment. But, you know, they have strength in depth. Let's hope they can sort it out. But this may not be one of the biggest problems for Formula One teams at the moment, as we are now only a matter of days away from the first race. And Sarah, I'm going to direct this firmly at you because there's one driver we're not ah. absolutely certain he's <laughs> going to be on the grid, are we? That's right. I assume that he'll probably be better by the time the race rolls around because, well, I mean, how long did it take you to recover? We're talking about Daniel Ricciardo, by the way. <laughs> no surprise. Correct. Yeah. The mighty Daniel Ricciardo, who we all love. We all yeah. love Daniel yeah. Ricciardo. Yeah. Uh, well, Sarah, I was laid out, I'd say about seven or maybe nine days mm. in total uh, between not feeling so good and then getting two days of negative tests so is there enough time for Danny Rick because he was feeling unwell for a while before he started testing positive wasn't he yeah I see well I guess it depends how quickly he bounces back because after you have COVID you do feel quite lethargic I don't know whether you had that Gareth but when I had COVID in December last year I was lethargic for a couple of days as were a few of my friends anyhow if he isn't able to drive I think they will go for Oscar Piastri he's been driving the F1 cars and he did spend a whole season last year dominating F2. Yeah. I don't think they'll go for a, a Formula E like a, a Nick De Vries or a Stoffel van Dorn. I think they'll probably go with somebody that's already been in an F1 car. Would you not agree? I don't know if Piastri is available because he's technically a an Alpine. Alpine driver. I thought Alpine had offered him to um Yeah, I think I think I think Alpine have, have said, you know, if you want him uh They've said that now, have they? Yeah, on loan, I think. But makes me, all of us realise now that McLaren obviously don't have a reserve driver. Yeah. Or reserve driver who they're happy to put in the race like mm. that. Yeah. My first thought about Piastri was he's a perfect replacement because you're replacing one Italian-Australian with another Italian-Australian. Mm. So this is just... <laughs> so, yeah, let's go for it. No one would notice a difference. And also there's a little bit of, from a kind of fan perspective, you know, we've seen Sofferman Dorn on track before in an F1 car. I'd like to see Piastri. Let's have a change. Let's see Piastri. You're absolutely right, Sarah, about Piastri dominating F2 last year. He was fantastic. But I also think Nick De Vries is worth a shot as well. You know, yeah. he's a very useful peddler. And the only reason he yeah. didn't get picked up was that he was racing at the same time as the likes of George Russell and Leclerc, who are standout drivers. Mm. But that doesn't mean that Nick DeFries isn't ruddy handy himself. Well, he won the Formula E World Championship last year. Exactly, yeah. So, you know, if you can make those cars go quick, you've got to be good. <laughs> Sorry, a little dig at Formula E there. All right, well, here we are now. We're recording the show on the Monday. You'll be listening to the show at the earliest on the Thursday, which means Friday we have the new curtailed shorter Formula One weekend with less running for the teams, less time to prepare. In the case of McLaren, they will have one driver, whether it's Piastri or Ricciardo or Nick de Vries or Stoffel van Dorn, who have never driven this generation of Formula One cars ever. And they'll be expected to test that car on Friday, qualify on Saturday and race. 
So I do feel sorry for McLaren, who also had other technical problems too. They had real brake issues. They had to yeah, curtail yeah, their they running, did. didn't yeah. they? So poor old McLaren, who we were hoping were going to come out of the trap flying, are going to come out slightly hindered, aren't they? Yeah, they've certainly got a bit of work to do at the start of the season. Yeah, let's see what they look like three or four races in, but they're not going to be troubling the front row for a while, clearly. True enough. OK, who is going to be the front row? Sarah, what's your guess? Top three qualifying on Saturday in Bahrain. Who's it going to be? Well, I guess our good friend Max Verstappen up there because he's been doing very well, obviously, this week. I'm going to say Fernando Alonso. And I wouldn't mind saying, let's go with Lando Norris. Ooh. Really? You think Lando's going to come out? He was fantastic. The McLaren, like, before they like had the brake problems, like they really, really did have a good-looking car. So, yeah, you can't rule them out. That's true. I'm not sure I agree with you on Alonso, though. Zoggy, what would you do? Top three qualifying. Top three qualifying? OK, I think it's going to be Verstappen, Leclerc, Sainz. Oh, yeah, Leclerc. Yes, of course. I think, yeah, there we go. The Ferrari looks really quick, really drivable, and I thought Leclerc... Claire sounded very confident in interviews. He was sort of saying, yeah, well, we've got a good, reliable car. We're not quite sure how quick it is yet. But he was sort of saying it in the manner, to me, of somebody that knew they had a very, very quick car. Yeah, there was a spring in their step, wasn't there? I'm going to say Max Pohl. I'm going to say Sainz second. And Leclerc third, fourth might be Perez and I'm not sure that Mercedes will have sorted their issues to get them above even sixth at the first race which could open it up for Alonso or even the Alpha Tauri or the Beta Tauri as I think we should call it I think that could be up there as well because it certainly showed speed over the weekend the question is reliability have they all built cars which A won't burst into flames or break down we're about to find out well Williams haven't apparently (laughs) (laughs) Oh, Williams, I want them to do well, but I'm not sure they're going yeah, to. Yeah, I said away, yeah. so do I. All right, well, that's it. I said that this would be a quick and dirty show, a short, quick show to make up for the fact that for the first time in 18 years of broadcasting or podcasting, we missed a date due to me being just not quite well enough not enough energy to make a program so i do apologize for missing that and hey we've made up for it as quick as possible and we will make up for it next week as well by of course being one of the first podcasts to react to the first race of the season we'll be back not in two weeks time but in seven days time with an analysis of how the first race went and a look back at our predictions to find out whether it was me Zorgo Sarah who got it right or maybe none of us Maybe it's going to be me, 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 it'll be me, 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 me. (laughs) Write it down and check back with us in seven days. But for now, you've been listening to Zog. Goodbye. And to Sarah. Goodbye. And we'll see you in seven days for another Gareth Jones on Speed. Say bye, guys. Bye. Bye. But I'm going to leave you now with a song. Because earlier on I mentioned how rocket science and motorsport are crossing over... Well, I thought that's a perfect excuse to revisit a song I wrote 10 years ago. Gareth Jones on speed. This is Big Audi Dynamite with Rocket Science. See ya. The cars are on the track. We don't want it to fall apart. That's the last thing we want it to do. I don't know what you want.
on how to contact the show, see pictures, get song lyrics, follow us on Twitter, find our Facebook fan page, or to sponsor the show, go to garethjones.tv. Gareth Jones on Speed is made in London by Wizbang. Gareth Jones on Speed! Speed!